0: Right, guys, we're, we're making our way. We're more than halfway through the 12 minor prophets, and uh, we're going to look today at a prophet called Habakkuk. Sometimes you will hear people pronounce it as Habakkuk, okay? Uh, most people just say Habakkuk, although occasionally you might hear somebody say Habakkuk. And uh, it is in the Scripture, and there are, of course, three chapters like with our last one, and maybe we'll do this in one week when we look at the message. Uh, But I think this is a very interesting book, because a lot of the books that we've been uh, reading have followed a certain format, although some of them haven't. Uh, A couple of them haven't, such as Jonah, which was more of a narrative, a story. And then last week when we looked at Nahum, it was more of a message to the Assyrians, okay, and the destruction of Nineveh. So this book is very interesting, and I think you'll see why it is when we get into it. So first of all, he is a pre-exilic prophet, so he's prophesying during the Assyrian Empire, okay? Now the book is actually going to talk about the Babylonians, but when it talks about the Babylonians, the big superpower at the time is the Assyrian Empire, okay, okay? It's gonna talk about what the Babylonians are gonna do or to complain about that, but they're living during the time of the Assyrian Empire, so which is right before uh, the Babylonians take over. So what you see there is a map of the Assyrian Empire, which if we were to show you a map of the Babylonian Empire, it would be that same area plus a little bit more, okay? So, just want you to be aware of that. So, here's the thing Habakkuk prophesied in the late 7th century BC. All right? Though it is impossible to determine the precise date, we don't know exactly when it was written, except that it was written in the 7th century BC, sometime in the 600s. Okay? So, that's all we know about. The date of it. He's a pre-exilic prophet. Uh, Habakkuk wrote during a time of international crisis with the emergence of Babylon as a world power. So when he's writing, yes, it's the Assyrian Empire. And probably at this point, Nineveh is not destroyed. But the Babylonians are starting to gain strength. The Babylonians are starting to start to start emerging as a another world empire that's going to challenge the Assyrians okay so there's a there's a time of international crisis now why would that be international crisis well when you're the big dog which is the Assyrians you have all of these lesser nations of course Judah would be a lesser nation the Phoenicians would be a le- lesser nation of course you would have the Philistines as a lesser nation, Edom, and all these different countries. What they would do to ensure that they had peace was they would send a tribute each year to the big empire, whether it would be gold or silver or animals or animal skins. Or something economically would be given by a vassal nation to the big guy to ensure that the big guy didn't come and beat them up or destroy them and take them away into exile, okay? Now, when there's an international crisis happening, what's happening is, okay, there's another person emerging, and that's Babylon. So what happens is, let's say I'm really sick. Let's say Rob's Assyria, okay? Rob is Assyria, and John is Babylon, okay? So Rob... It's like he's making serious demands. He wants 100 million chickens plus all the sheep. And he wants all my grain. And he's demanding that every year. Well, here comes, here comes John. He moves in and he's flexing his muscles. And he says, you know what? I don't even need half the chickens. And you can keep your sheep. And I don't need your grain. But I'll take care of you. Okay? So what happens is, is some of these other nations now are deciding that they're not going to give tribute anymore to Assyria, they're going to give tribute to who? They're trying to they're, they're forming new alliances. So this is a time of really uh an international crisis, political turmoil happening, you know, with nations deciding what to do. The other thing is he wrote during a time of extreme corruption within Judah and Jerusalem. So it isn't just that he is uh, writing during a time of the emergence of this big new power and the crisis that follows with that. He's also writing during a time, which I think the kings are at this point Jehoiachin, Jehoiakim. All of them are very, very corrupt kings, And so the system is completely corrupt, the people are corrupted, the people are violent, the innocent are being killed, so he's writing during all these times, okay? So Habakkuk is writing during this period, although we don't know the exact date of the writing, we understand the period in which he's writing, okay? We understand the period in which he's writing. So let's talk about Habakkuk, the the prophet himself. So the first thing is always, we want to start out with his name. Okay, so the name Habakkuk means embrace or press to the heart. So this is what his name means. Now, the significance of this is that, you know, if it was for me, it would say, the oracle that George the prophet saw. My name doesn't mean anything except it's George, okay? If you notice with the other prophets, typically their names, the names they were given, have a connection with the type of message that they're bringing, right? Okay? So Martin Luther, do you remember who Martin, anybody know who Martin Luther is? The great reformer, wrote the 95 Theses, started the Protestant Reformation, okay? Martin Luther said this, he was a great theologian, he stated that his, his name speaks to one who took the nation to his heart and embraced it. So here's a guy who's writing, and he's not just condemning. Actually, you're going to find that this letter is completely different than the other letters, the other books. He took to heart what was going to happen to the nation because of their sin, and because of the Babylonians coming, and he embraced it. Okay? So, you're going, this is already setting the tone for what this book is going to be about. Okay? which I think we can relate to because we'll talk about it here in a moment. All right, now who is Habakkuk? What did he do? Where is he from? Well, the home of the prophet Habakkuk is unknown. We just know he came from Judah. That's it. We don't know where. It doesn't say what village or if he came from Jerusalem. We don't know anything. He's just this unknown guy who we don't know except it's God's word. Okay, so we don't know who he is. And although some scholars believe the context of the book points to Jerusalem. So when you read the text itself, when you read the three chapters, it seems like he's writing about somewhere where he's from, and that somewhere is Jerusalem. Okay? So we can assume that maybe he is a prophet from Jerusalem. Okay? So, and we know nothing about his background, nothing about the prophet's background and occupation. We don't know anything about him. We just know his name. We just know that it has been recognized both by the Jews and by Christians as being the word of God, and we have this book. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend the rest of our time talking about what this book is about, okay? So first thing I want you to notice is, is that the book of Habakkuk differs from the other prophets in who the book is directed to. The difference between this book and the other prophets is who the message is going to. So let me ask you a question. So when you think about some of the other prophets, Hosea, uh, Joel, when we think about Amos and Micah, who were those books written to? To the nation, no, not to the nations, one nation though. Huh? Huh? Well, to the, to Israel, yes. Whether it's the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom, it was God's people. And what was it? It was God's message for them, right? Now, what I want you to understand is, is that when we talk about this book, it's a message for somebody completely different. Well, you say, well, wait a minute, George, we just looked at Nahum, and it was a message to who? Who was Nahum to? Nineveh, the Assyrians, right? Well, no, it's not even to them. Who's it for? Well, this is what this I think this is going to be. This is an interesting book I read. In fact, it's only 3 chapters. You should read it. Instead of taking the Lord's message to the people, he takes the people's complaints to God. So this is a book where he begins by bringing the complaints of the people to God, This isn't the prophet saying, okay, this is what the Lord says, you're schmucks, you're not doing right, I'm going to punish you. This is God. This is where we're at. In fact, if you look with me, if you look in your Bibles at Habakkuk, okay? Very first chapter, here's how it begins. Verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Now, is that a complaint? Can you relate to that? Can you, can you relate to what he's saying? Yeah, uh, he, it, it, it is a complaint, and it's okay to say that, because sometimes, I don't know if I want to say I'm complaining with God. No, no, it's a complaint. But it's saying to God, where are you? Okay, so can we relate to that? When we go through difficult times, even if we create them for ourselves, we have this sense of abandonment, right? And we want to know where God is, and why doesn't he hear me? Why aren't you listening to me? And this prophet is expressing That type of message throughout this book. Now, of course, he's going to acknowledge God. He's going to acknowledge what God is doing and so forth. But this is a message of a complaint to God for the people. In fact, there are some other portions of the Old Testament that are exactly like this. Anybody know where you might find something like this? Psalms, that's right, Bruce. In the Psalms, same thing. Some of the Psalms, the psalmist will write, My enemies are coming for me, Lord. Where are you? You know what I'm saying? I feel abandoned. You know, they're coming after me. And so this is the same type of message. Now, okay. So as we think about that, what's the relevance to you and I? Why would a book like this be good for you and I to read? Just three chapters. Why would it be good for you and I to read this kind of book, or any of those psalms? Why would it be good? Okay, we can resonate with it. That's exactly right, Lori. We can resonate with it. Anybody else? We're allowed to ask that. Now, why, why would it be good for us to know that, uh, Tim? Because a lot of people think that you're not on to challenge, that we are not question God. Okay, yeah, I wouldn't use the word challenge, but question God, yes, okay, yeah. And, and what we see from Scripture from a book like this is that, yes, it's okay. And by the way, can I tell you, that Scripture is filled with opportunities of questioning God? What do you mean? Well, think about... John chapter 11. What happens in John chapter 11? Lazarus dies. Jesus waits three days to go see him. He's dead. Jesus said he's dead. Let's go. They get there. Who meets them first? Who who meets Jesus first when he shows up for the funeral? His sister, which sister? There's two sisters, which one first? She sometimes gets a bad rap, Martha. Okay, and Martha, first thing out of her mouth when she sees Jesus is, "Oh, I'm, gl- not, I'm glad you're here, Jesus." You know, it's Lord, if you had not, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. Is that a complaint? Yeah, I, I, would, I would encourage you to read John chapter eleven, and what you're going to find is that he goes and she's voicing her pain. This is what I want you to understand. It's the voicing of pain. God, if you had been here, and notice how Jesus handles her. He doesn't say, be quiet woman. Don't you know who you're talking to? He deals with her gently and guides her through to the place of faith. Do you you understand what I'm saying? So a book like this, this prophet who knows that God is sending the Babylonians to punish Judah and Jerusalem. He knows that many are going to die. Others are going to be taken away into exile for 70 years of exile. He knows that this difficulty is coming. And of course, he's, because that's his name, embracing to his heart the people. And he's saying to God, why aren't you listening to us, Lord? where are you? Don't you love us? So we can relate to that, right? And so the book really has relevance to you and I. In fact, I thought, man, why haven't we heard more messages like this from Habakkuk? You know what I'm saying? Because there is something there for us to learn from it, right? There's something there. In fact, what we want to spend the rest of our time here is looking at The lessons, okay? I want to give you five lessons from the book that we're going to see, all right? Five lessons from the book. Here's the first one. The supremacy of the Lord's judgment upon the wicked. This is going to come out in these three chapters as we look at them, is that God is supreme. He is the one who's in control, and his judgment is supreme as he executes it on the wicked. Now, what can we learn from that? When we talk about his supremacy in judgment upon the wicked, what can we learn from that? Okay, so what you're saying is we struggle with the inequality. and and, and I'm assuming you're saying, like, why are they getting away with something? Okay, all right. So is that not true? We look at things and we look and say, why are they getting away with it? When you consider the supremacy of God's judgment on the wicked, are they going to get away with it? No, that's the lesson you're going to see here is that there is an accounting. It's just not in our time frame or when we would like it to happen. You know what I'm saying? So there is, there is an accounting. So the supremacy of the Lord's judgment upon the wicked. Here's the other one. The faithfulness of God is permanent. This is the other lesson is that God is permanent. Now, why would this be so important in a, in a, in a, in a book like this where the guy's expressing his complaint to the Lord? Why would it be so important for it to be reiterated in the book that God's faithfulness is permanent? Why would that be important? Okay, and so when you go through hard times, what do you start thinking? You start to doubt that God cares for you and that God's going to be with you and God's watching over you. Can we resonate with that? Have you not thought that when you go through difficult times? Like, where are you, God? Why is this happening to me? You know, and and so forth. And so what this book is going to stress is, and I think this is a very important point, Is that when we talk about God's faithfulness to his children, which is who? Who are his children? Are his children in this room? Yeah, we. Okay, so when we talk about his faithfulness to us, it's permanent. So it isn't based on you, right? Because we're talking about a people, he's, he's expressing the pain of a people who are going to be judged by God, but yet the book is going to stress the faithfulness of God, it being permanent. It His permanence isn't affected by the sin of his people. He's still going to be faithful to them, right? And I think that is so powerful for you and I, because even if you mess up, and you will, right? Is, everybody agree with that? Okay, what does that mean about God's faithfulness? Is his faithfulness hinged on you? No, his faithfulness is hinged on himself and it's permanent. That is an awesome lesson we're gonna see here. Okay, awesome lesson. Here's the third one. Evil is self-destructive. Sometimes we need to be reminded of that. Evil is self-destructive. I think we learned that lesson from history, but ultimately all evil will end up destroying itself, period, period. Do you you understand what I'm saying? It is self-destructive, and we're going to see that in this book, okay? Evil is self-destructive. Here's the other one. Suffering is disciplinary. This is going to come out. Now, there are a lot of different reasons for suffering, and and many different portions of Scripture will tell you different reasons. With Habakkuk, he's going to stress that sometimes the suffering that we face is because of God's discipline. And that's especially important here because we're talking about a people who are breaking the covenant that they made with God. And God told them, if you break this covenant, this is what's going to happen. You're going to be taken away into exile. You're going to suffer, and all of these things. And so what he's showing here in this book, which would be very important to the Jews of that day, is that when they look at the suffering they're going to endure, especially at the hands of the Babylonians, it was disciplinary. Do you understand? It was God's discipline on their lives. Now the final lesson is it's to promote the growth of, of faith of God's people from doubt to trust. It's to promote the growth of faith from doubt to trust in God's people. Okay, so when you look at the very first thing that he says in this book, what kind of statement is this? Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear me? Is that a statement of faith or a statement of doubt? Okay, doubt. Nancy said doubt. John said doubt. Would everybody agree it's a doubt statement? It's not a faith statement. What this book is going to do as we work through it, he's going to move from a place of doubt because he's consumed by all of the terrible things that are going on around him or that are coming, and he moves to a place of what? Faith. Faith in who? Himself? The nation? Yeah, God. You can't have... Not in himself, and definitely not in the nation, because they're pretty corrupt. You know what I'm saying? So it's moving from a place of doubt to a place of faith, okay? From a place of doubt to a place of faith. So why would a book like this be good for us, though? Why why do you think, especially today, why do you think reading a book like this where Okay, so I'm assuming that when you look at what's happening around us in our world today, are you happy with it? No, you're not happy with it. Is it affecting you? What? Yes, it affects us. Is it affecting us negatively? How how are you responding to that? I don't want to get into specifics, but how, how, in general, how do you respond to the stuff that's happening today? Or could it get any worse? Have you ever thought that? Can it get any worse? You know what I'm saying? Yes, it can. That's the scary thing, right, Bruce? And we know that it can. Yes. The testimony of Scripture is, is that it can get worse, right? So... So when you're looking at that, if you think about how you're processing this, and, and even if you decide, I am not listening to news this week, okay, so you don't listen to news, but can you escape it? Because you go out to coffee with somebody, and guess what they're talking about? Do <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And you're like, ah! And what what happens in your heart because you're thinking, and especially in our Christian circles today in our nation, we think that everything's supposed to be getting what? Better. But here's, here's the problem though. If you really understood the scripture and the move of where everything is, it's moving to Jesus. Is it supposed to get better? No, we, we forget. Did you understand? We forget. So most of us and, and our church would be this way. We, 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 we hold to a theological position that is called dispensationalism that we're moving towards the return of Jesus Christ. And as we move there, because of the wickedness of man, things are really going to get bad to a point where Jesus comes back and ends it, right? Okay. Now, there is a viewpoint that is the theological viewpoint that some other denominations hold that is called amillennialism. Or postmillennialism, and that is, is we are going to usher in the kingdom as everything gradually gets what? Better. Now, we disagree with that because we don't see that in Scripture, number one, and that's not what we see in human life. Now, the problem is, is what I find is, is for a lot of Christians, even though they will proclaim a dispensational viewpoint that everything's going to be moving to getting worse and Jesus is going to come back, they practically live like a millennialist, thinking that everything is going to get better. But it's not, is it? It's not. And so when you think of that, rather than reacting, you look at it and you say, okay, now I understand, yeah, I see that we're moving in that direction. Prophecy makes sense, right? When we, it's not like the God's word hasn't told us these things would be happening, right? We begin to see that everything is moving to that great crescendo when Jesus Christ comes back. Now the problem is, is that we still are human beings. And as human beings, when we look at what is going on and and we're seeing all this stuff happening and and it angers us, it frustrates us, it grieves us, we start feeling because we practically live as all millennialists that somehow God has what? Forgotten us or abandoned us or something or he's diverted his attention somewhere else. And so, God, why aren't you doing something Why aren't you changing this? Do do, do you see what I'm saying? So when you read a book like this, where the first thing that comes out of the prophet's mouth is, God, why aren't you listening to my prayers? Have you not felt that way? Because I'm sure some of you are praying for the nation, right? You pray for certain leaders to be elected or whatever, and then they don't get elected. Who do you vent to? besides the guy you're having coffee with, okay? Who do you vent to? Okay, that's good, Bruce. But some people do, though. Some people do. And, and the reality is, you need to say, okay, Lord, help me to have a bigger picture. And a book like Habakkuk helps us to have a bigger picture because it moves us from doubt to trust. Doubt to trust, because if I look at what's happening around me and the circumstances of everything falling apart, it doesn't seem to be like any solution to it. It's natural to have doubts, right? It's natural to have doubts. But what I need to do is move to where? Trust in the Lord, because he's the one who's ultimately in control, and he's watching over you, right? Remember, we just said, let me go back, The faithfulness of God is permanent, right? The faithfulness of God to his children is permanent. He's not going to be less faithful to you because the world is upended. And by the way, can I be honest with you? You think it's chaos out there and that, oh my goodness, God's not shocked by the chaos. In fact, if I read Psalm 2, he laughs at who? The rulers of this world. Who rage against him and his people. Did you understand what I'm saying? God is the one who's ultimately in control. Okay. So a book like this has relevance to you and I. And it's, it's trying to call us to a place of faith. So next week, we'll do it all in one week, the three chapters and take a look.